0: Welcome to Greenhouse Grower to Grower, the podcast where we talk to growers from across the greenhouse industry about market trends, innovation, their biggest challenges and opportunities, and more. I'm Brian Sparks, Senior Editor of Greenhouse Grower. If you've listened to past episodes of the Greenhouse Grower to Grower podcast so far, you've noticed that our main focus is on conversations with growers from across the industry. This episode takes a slightly different approach. Just about everyone in the floriculture industry has met or worked with either Dr. Bridget B. of Michigan State University or Dr. Terrell Nell of American Floral Endowment at some point. If you haven't, you've at least experienced the impact of their work in improving plant production and improving engagement with plant consumers. Both Bridget and Terrell's career paths have crossed at many points, and now they've each made the decision to step away from their long careers. While it seems like no one ever really retires from this industry, It's a great time to recognize them for their many accomplishments. In this episode, I asked Bridget and Terrell to join me on a call together. Here's our conversation. I kind of want to start, you know, going back to the beginning. Um, And Bridget, we'll start with you, I guess. Um, You know, what drew you to the horticulture industry uh, as your career started?
1: Uh, Initially, I wanted to be a surgeon. Um, I thought that would be very exciting and got excellent grades but when you weren't at the top of every exam that hurt your chances toward medical school and i thought well gosh i i love biology i love a lot of things about it and i wanted to have a life too i had to hope to have a a marriage and a family and a career and um the the road to medicine was just not set up that well for having all of those things and had, I had two grandmothers. My father's mom was a big vegetable gardener and my mother's mom was a huge flower gardener. She was actually a tester for Jackson and Perkins roses. And we'd sit out in the garden and help think of names and she'd mail things, uh, you know, mail results back in. And, and I think that's ultimately what caused my shift in, uh, human biology to plant biology. But then once I figured out the business dimension of horticulture really needed more research, not economics, and I get confused a lot with being an economist, and I'm not an economist, never was, never will be. Um, But the, the space that ultimately defined my career was really where the rubber meets the road in consumer perceptions. And so it was a, a bit of a meandering path, I guess you could say. I don't think anybody goes into a career in a straight line or not very many people I know.
0: Yeah, that
2: makes sense. Tara what about you? Well, it's interesting. The story I tell is and very true, is kind of like Bridget. I had a grandmother who was a avid gardener. Um, in a Northwest Florida, when you're an avid gardener, you you've got ten months of the year. But this wonderful woman could get geraniums to grow throughout the summer in Pensacola, Florida, which is just unheard of. Hmm. Um, so I saw that, and and you know she kind of to me at times. Um, but the the time when I was probably about, I'd say eight, um, we were actually. Um, living next door to my grandparents, <laughs> one of the bays in Pensacola. Well, one day she gave me this small little packet of something. And I said, What is this? And she said, Oh, they're seeds. Just go, um, you know, tear the top open, go over there, rub up, rub up some soil, sprinkle them over the area, and um, then lightly cover them. Well, darn it, if the marigolds didn't come up and if they didn't flower. So, success. <laughs> um, and during high school, I, I mowed lawns. Um, I did decide that mowing lawns was not what I wanted to do. Uh, so, that, that was a scratch against horticulture. Um, but uh, when I went to college, I went to Auburn, to start with, um, I didn't even know what it was called. Okay. My next door neighbors were Auburn grads. My parents were high school grads, um, and so my mother went with me, and we rings to meet with the dean. I said, "You know, this is what I enjoy doing." He said, "Oh, that's horticulture." So I started out in horticulture, and um, it was fun, um, and and yet Auburn at that point was almost all landscape and plant identification. There was one person who was in uh, the world floriculture, but he he didn't do the kind of things that intrigued me. And <clears throat> I was recruited to go to NC State. Okay, and I look back, and it's fun to look back and think: who are those people who really triggered you to think about things and um, triggered you to, as you say, like horticulture in my case, floriculture? And my major professor at NC State was Roy Larson, uh, Bridget I'm sure knew Roy, um, he was a legend, uh, he always wore, he was a good Swede, and he did not hesitate to tell you that he was from Sweden, um, through Minnesota, and every day um, he wore a flower tie, really? I don't mean with small old flowers, I mean bold flowers, and his wife made the ties. And so when he traveled or they traveled or some of us traveled and you saw a fabric store, you went out and see see what was the most outlandish uh, uh, fabric you could find with flowers on it. And that's where he got his ties. I think they're in the museum at NC State now. No kidding. My understanding was that he was giving all those two to the museum. Um, but Roy, his he had five graduate students at the time. And all of them did abide by this. I did because I liked it. He said, you know, if you're not in class, you need to be in the greenhouse helping us. Mm-hmm. And so I was always in the greenhouse. He grew every crop imaginable. And so I was exposed for two years. I, I say, yes, it was education. It was a two-year internship. Uh, where you know I learned to uh, grow lilies on chrysanthemums, and the only thing we didn't really have were, were cut roses. Okay, and the, I mean, I made my mistake, or mistakes. You know, one day he said we, or his assistant said we need to disbud these um, um, these chrysanthemums. So I did. I disbudded the center bud. And they were not just, you know, that was not just budding. Uh, so you learn. But then I went to Michigan State and um, worked with a uh, couple people there. Um, started out with Bill Carpenter, who was a good floriculturist, um, and um, I ended up working on cut roses there. Okay. So it was just a perfect situation that I I learned potted plants in NC State and cut flowers at Michigan State. And I also was a teaching assistant, so I taught all the uh, Bill Carpenter's floriculture labs. And he, the first day, he said, "Okay, you're gonna be teaching." Lisa. I said, "Well, you know, what's the plan on what do you have ordered?" He said, "I don't." He said, "This is totally up to you." So I had to make the syllabus, and I used what Roy had used at NC State, and then got on the phone and talked to Paul Ecky and Ball and others, and said, "Hey, I need I need my plant material." And we filled a greenhouse, and it was a lot of fun. Good, good.
0: So how did all of that then take you to American Floral
2: Endowment then? Um, Well, as Bridget knows, and she's been fortunate enough to be the recipient of AFP funds through the years, and um, her colleague uh, for many years, Royal Hines, and I were about the same um, time in our careers. And I... I found out about about AFE when I was looking um at where where could I get funding? And uh, Roy Larson, I'm not Bill Carpenter had received AFE funding uh, because the chairman of AFE at the time was a guy named John Henry. And they had John Henry plant labels and such. Yeah. Right there in Lansing. And I remember Bill just being thrilled one day, he said, I just got a letter, I, I got AFE funding. I think it was all of $5,000, but he, in those days, 5000 was a lot of money. And so I learned about AFE there and watched what he did, um, how he did it, and then um, went to Florida. And after about four or five years, I, I saw that Bob was going to have additional graduate students or support it was going to be outside funds and so I went to uh, I went to American Floral Endowment and as many of us did also Gleckner and um then there was I think there was one other but they were all learning experiences so Bridget you know I want to ask how you
0: eventually worked your way over to Michigan State but before I get to that I know you know your big focus has been on you know the, the uh, on the end consumer so enhancing the consumer experience getting to know more about your end consumer I think it's for, from my perspective it can be very easy in this industry if you're a grower that doesn't necessarily work with whoever your end consumer is it can be easy to lose sight of that connection can you kind of talk about you know the importance of that connection and you know what a grower can do if you feel you're in a spot where you don't have the day-to-day conversations with your end consumer what can they do to, overcome that and 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 become more involved
1: well our growers like many professionals in our industry are incredibly overworked uh, many times of the year and that need to do what you must do kind of supersedes um sometimes supersedes being able to look down the channel of distribution and You've got insects, nutrition, water, temperature. I mean, there's just so many things to manipulate slash control that um, often that focus just by having a lack of time isn't there. Um, um, One of my favorite books is The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. It was really life changing for me. And I, I taught it in the management class that I taught for over 25 years. But in there, Covey talks about doing things that are important, but not urgent. And that is really where a lot of marketing fits in until it's a crisis. But I think growers and retailers can make a concerted effort at times, particularly at, at busy times in retail sales, to take some time and and just watch. Watch people shopping in a store and watch them not read signs and see, look at your sales data and see what's selling out first. And maybe that's price too low, but it needs to be a commitment just like many other things that are on the plate of growers and retailers. It needs to be a commitment to, to look down the channel periodically or have somebody provide you some reports. We, we are just inundated with data today. And there's a lot of numbers that people just don't make the time to look at. But doing some of that, picking the metrics that are important, whether that's average sale per customer, customer, ca- I mean, there, there's just too many metrics to to mention. And the the really good businesses have people who several people not just one person who will look at that data and then like I used to tell my students numbers don't make decisions people do you have to understand whether that's that number is right or wrong and and what needs to be done about it but it, it like so many like exercise like anything else in our lives you we we make a commitment either to do it or, we just say that's not important enough to do.
0: Okay. So then how, how did you find your way to Michigan State then? And then, you know, in particular, you know, I know it's it's very easy, not easy, but you can find information, you know, in classes on how to grow a better plant, how to manage pests and diseases. The f- areas that you're focusing on, you know, I think need to be de- a, a developed as well. So how did that bring you to Michigan State then?
1: Um... I actually dual degreed and the dean at Penn State at graduation was only going to give me one of the diplomas. And I said, no, sir, there's another one after that in agricultural education. And he said, oh, my goodness, you're right. But right before that diploma was awarded, I had a very large grower in Pennsylvania say, and, and this is back in 1982, he said, Bridget, you're young, you're, you're single and there's no grower that's going to invest in you because you're going to be married and have a family before too much longer and I thought wow that was kind of one of my first big epiphany (laughs) in the industry and so I started to do a little soul searching I guess you could say and that's where the business part took me to Ohio State where the late Jerry Robertson had a program in horticulture that focused on business marketing management and i thought i was really excited about that and tragically he was killed in a car accident about uh, six eight months after i started my master's program but there are some very very talented faculty who said i will help and i went knocking on doors um the late harry Tayama was one of them um over in AggieCon, over in the marketing department, I, I got some really good help. And then um, at my defense, uh, my master's defense, it was a decision to go back to Penn State for a PhD. And uh, so I, I did, and I was able to thankfully put together a, a really broad doctoral program where I took classes in the marketing department. It was just tremendous. Well, then I had a department chair at a de- at a very prestigious horticulture school saying, you've just wasted 10 years of college. And you, oh, know, wow. you, know, mm-hmm. and, and you wouldn't be surprised that the university person that said this, but he said, um, you know, there's no university that's going to hire you. And I started looking around and obviously there were no positions in marketing anywhere, but Auburn... Had all white males and they needed minorities on the tenure stream. And so I was offered a greenhouse extension position and I took it because I thought, well, I can get my research program off the ground. And so uh, Floyd Woods, an African American who I think is still on the faculty there, and I were hired at the same time. And about eight years later, Michigan State had a position open up, and they had written it very broadly for plant nutrition, floral design. There were a whole bunch of things that could be done in that faculty position, and I was encouraged to apply. And um, a faculty member was driving me to the airport after my interview, and he said, "We won't take no for an answer." And I thought, "You just have to ask the question." So. <laughs> It uh it was it was uh again a very circuitous path that that took me to Michigan State. I learned a lot at Auburn. I I learned a lot at Auburn and uh I was able I think to really thrive at Michigan State.
0: Okay. I'd like to hear more about how how each of you then have worked together over your careers. Um I know you know Bridget you you've been the recipient of funding from AFE but how 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 have how has your work kind of collaborated or coincided with, you know, the goals of of American Floral Endowment?
1: Well, you know, Terrell alluded to the, the funding that Art Cameron and I got quite a few years ago. And I think it was around that time AFE discovered that they needed to separate the production grants from the marketing grants. It became a little bit it, it was very obvious the the resources that were going to be devoted to marketing and gosh i'm trying to think i i don't think terrell and i have ever had a project that was either related like in a two-step kind of fashion but this industry isn't that big and the profession the academic circles even the industry circles we know of each other's work we I mean, I've read several of Terrell's papers and I, I know a good bit about what he does. I think from the marketing standpoint, I try to look at what my colleagues in production and plant nutrition are doing with what the crops they're working on. And that kind of informs some of the research proposals that I have done. So in that sense, there's good uh, collaboration between kind of production research and, and consumer research? It absolutely needs to be. Why would we look at crops or products that are not pertinent to the industry, you know, in a timely manner?
0: Yeah, well, I've got to imagine that's very important that, you know, you have the, these, the, these pillars of, of production, information provi- uh, production data and this marketing data, but to your point, they have to go together that's the only way that you're going to be successful, both as an individual grower as an as an industry. I would think,
1: right. And and the the real challenge for funding the marketing research it comes in, and I'm not sure what how the laws are written for money that can be spent on production versus money that can be spent on marketing. But I know that was an issue that arose at least in my awareness at AFE was the first time I became aware of that. And so there are only specific pools of money that a researcher who's looking at consumer research can go after. And I think a lot of the federal funds, they do a lot better job of distinguishing what pools of money, my work and others who do work like me are eligible for versus production or pest insect disease resistance, those kinds of issues.
2: Okay. Right, I can clarify that a little bit. Okay. Um, Bridget's correct, but it actually, when AfB formed the uh, Floriculture Marketing Fund, um, it was because of legal issues. It was IRS. <laughs> um, AfB is a 501c3, which most you know nonprofits are that we know oh. about. Um, non 501c3s cannot support marketing research so they had to do a new application call a new group that was a 501c6 I think and that was specifically for marketing and it came about first Brazil was right that uh, AFB um, saw they needed to support marketing research and marketing management however you want to uh, phrase it um, and it was at the time when there had been money uh, with a group looking at marketing a joint marketing effort between California growers and Colombian growers, and after gosh eight or nine years, it they decided to close up shop. Uh, they could only give it to uh, another foundation, and then AFB was the one that was selected. In right. to receive that money legally, it had to be a 501c6. For sure it's a C6. So that was all that came about. Okay. Um,
0: you know, both of you had talked about education, you know, a little bit during our conversation here, and I know, you know, that's been a big part of each of your careers. I'd like to, you know, ask, you know, both, you know, why that is so important that that continuing education for growers, but then also, you know, your educators, you're also learners yourselves. So can you maybe talk about what are some of the most important things that each of you have learned as your careers have grown?
1: I was heartily discouraged by both of my parents going to go into education because they said that it didn't pay. And and I smile and I kind of chuckle about that now because I, I can't imagine my career being anything but a priority education being a priority Um Even yesterday evening, I was on the phone with a former student who has a a cut flower business in Southeastern Michigan, and she's become a a good friend. And I think one of my greatest accomplishments is seeing students who I had a small hand, either in, in a class or in a couple of classes or mentoring them in other ways, seeing them be happy and productive in our industry. there There is no greater reward for me than knowing that I had a small hand in some of that. And and I continue that and will continue that for as long as they want to have the conversations with me. Yeah. But lifelong learning is essential to change and development of any individual. And I am constantly reading. I'm I'm getting better with podcasts. I, I had a student say, "Oh, Dr. B, you need to put your class on as a podcast." And and I did a podcast for about six years because the the ways that we learn are continuing to to develop. But yeah. I think reading is the most important thing any of us can do to continue to grow and develop.
0: Okay. That's a good point about the ways that you can learn, or that you that you can educate others, are evolving. I mean, we see that just in within Greenhouse Square. It used to be we would just have the print magazine and maybe a website with a few stories. Now it's it's print magazines, it's newsletters, it's websites, it's videos, it's podcasts, it's webinars, it's everything. Um,
1: And we have to teach ourselves how to do those things because they don't have classes for academics on how to start a podcast or how to update your website and it it's we're, we're continuing to learn so we can be better educators
2: uh, I think you probably- further Bridget yeah no no one ever taught us how to give talks no um and I tell you that's one area I would love to pull a group of academics together and say okay folks you know you don't put a table on the screen that has 30 numbers and you can't read them and they mean nothing <laughs> you know, pick out the numbers, pick out the information that makes a difference, and talk about it. Mm-hmm. You know what the people attending talk, attending podcast, webinars, they want the take-home messages. They don't care how you did the research. They're trusting that Bridget or me or others knew how to conduct the research to reach that conclusion. Um, but it's I find it very frustrating.
1: It is. And I think a lot of it comes from, we, we teach them how to be good students, academicians, but we don't teach them how to be good. I'll call it translators, because I think there is a real art to taking research information and translating that into practical, useful, here's here's what you do with this kind of information. You're you're absolutely right, Terrell.
2: And, you know, Brian, the whole education thing, I, I agree with Bridget, that Lifelong learning is very important. Uh, my um my grandmother, the geranium grandmother, um, lived in ninety six and um, I I knew her well. And I don't she was in her nineties and her eyesight was getting pretty bad. But we'd go in to her her apartment, her house, wherever she was living, and she had a on National Geographic. Or she had on a game show where she was learning to spell. And this is a woman who left school at sixth grade. Huh. And, but she really loved to learn. And she could talk about it. But, um, you know, National Geographic is, um, if you look at their programs, they're everyday language. And they, they try to really, I guess, I'll, I'll use the word dumb it down. Mm-hmm. So, anybody can understand it. Um, and I'm not sure Stephen Covey talks about that, but I agree also that uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People is one of the best books. Um, as in my days of department chair for 20 years, I got to the point of giving that book. It's one of the first things to new faculty. Yeah. Because if you paid attention to that, you would be productive. And if you didn't, you're going to be doing those things that you thought were important, but nobody else thought was important. And that's,
1: that's I helpful. think it's, I think it's the best management textbook ever written.
0: Yeah. Well, and that's a great point there, too. And I know we have these conversations, you know, as we're working with, you know, researchers who might want to write something for our audience, we have to have those conversations, too, where you, technical is great and there's always a place for that, but you ultimately have to present a message that's going to be, easily receivable to whoever's reading and then practical to what they're doing
2: as well. So I can definitely appreciate what each of you were saying there. Yeah. One of the things I have concerns about right now, you know, we're talking about webinars and podcasts and uh, written media and Brian, you and I have discussed this a little bit in the past is how do you know what works? How do you know how you're, you're getting across to, I'm going to say a grower it could be a wholesaler. It could be a retailer. Um, and I think that's really important right now. You know, when I think the meeting idea, industry meetings, mm-hmm. I'd like to see that get back into some form where people are seeing each other face to face and not necessarily on a computer. Because when that happens, you get networking yeah. and people actually start, even if they're competitors, they might start talking a little bit. And I think that there's a huge, huge value in that. Um, and I mean, I'm seeing it on some of the, the information that um, I don't care who puts it out. Okay, mm-hmm. If you can put it out, university can put it out. Um, and then you get a phone call saying, well, can you tell me how to do this? And folks, it's right there. It's on a web, website. It's on this publication. And it makes me wonder... You yeah, know, well, there's big deal about sound bites. Yeah, it's almost like you need to do 25 word sound bite, and that's it.
1: Well, our attention spans, especially of uh, younger people, have substantially reduced, and many of them are not willing to put the time in, especially reading. I, I see that as a big challenge today. They'd rather hear it orally. Um, Than to get information by by reading it, it it's and and we're different learners. The, that research is abundantly clear that we learn differently, um, and so trying to address the needs of many different types of learners and different ages of learners is a very contemporary problem.
0: I would imagine too, even if you're at a meeting, you know the the the. There's being talked at, like if you know, you, if a grower goes into a, a meeting room at Cultivate and they hear a speaker give an hour long presentation, there's definitely a purpose for that. There's also the talking with and having like a panel discussion where the whole idea of it is not to have these long presentations, but to have a dialogue among three or four growers about some of their common challenges.
1: And then to Terrell's point, it's really, I think, the conversations that happen in the hallway or before, during and after dinner that really have a big effect on future actions. It may not be learning in the present moment, but it might be learning a direction to take or you need to learn more about this. But those conversations can't happen as easily online as they do in person at meetings.
2: Yeah. And if you're if you're you're a researcher, even if you're a teacher <clears throat> and you're paying attention. Um by those interactions, you're learning what the needs are of industry. And I mean, you really cultivate great, great meeting. And probably all three of us have had conversations there, multiple conversations every year. That you come home and say, Gosh, I learned something. Or I want to put this to use. Um, yeah, with me with having been at Pro Flora last week in Bogota. I can almost name six people I talked to, maybe eight. I made more progress in understanding the situation by talking with those people than I could have done in 25 phone calls or who knows how many emails because we were there face-to-face, we knew each other. Yeah, we had that trust and you talk. Yeah. And it's, it's really, once you learn that, and you're willing to share and they're willing to share, hey, it's a win-win for everybody. Well, and to your point too, I, I would imagine most of those
0: insights that you gleaned weren't from, you know, a pre-scheduled meeting that you had with somebody, but it's from literally running to somebody in the in the hallway, you know, on in one of the trade show aisles.
2: Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's how these happen for me. Yeah. And so it's all, it really is a win-win.
0: So, you know, we've talked about how certain segments of the industry, you know, in this past, this most recent conversation on, on communication, how that's evolved, you know, as, as you've been in the industry over the years, you know, there's certainly been innovation at several levels and in, sev- and in several segments of the industry. I wonder if maybe each of you could, could kind of talk about what you think are the single most important innovations that you've seen, um, you know, taking place within the floriculture industry over the last few years, and then how that would help drive the industry forward as well.
2: Well, our our areas are, are very different. Um, I mean, I, I'm more production and and post harvest, mm-hmm. um, and yet Bridget and I, through the years, almost had parallel paths in some ways, because our focus was on the end consumer, mm-hmm. and so that I think that's important. So you know, I thought about this ahead of time. And I guess I have to go back to my days at Michigan State when um, I walk in and Bill Carpenter was doing um, high-intensity lighting work, which in those days was also being done by Cornell and several other universities. What they come up with? Sodium vapor. Some of the big technology advancements, without a doubt, has been going from no light, supplemental lighting in the... 60s and 70s and before to sodium vapor and everything was kind of stagnant until um somebody developed led lighting (laughs) and there was a period in 2014-15 i thought gosh everybody and their brother who's a researcher wanted to do led lighting i wasn't sure we needed that many people doing led lighting (laughs) um but that's one of the big changes um at the same time, um, environmental control and manipulation of the environment has been huge. Uh, from the days when, you know, you had a thermostat in the greenhouse, and when you left, you turned it to this temperature. When you came in, you turned it back to another temperature. And then, Royal Ides and his group at Michigan State um, developed the DIFF program, mm-hmm. control plant height using different temperature, daylight temperature regimes. Um, so I put all that together as environmental management within production. Um, and then being post harvest, I mean that's come a long ways from when Bill Carpenter and George Stabby were given AFE grants um, on different kind of projects. But in those days nobody really thought about what effects the quality of the flower or plant that the consumer is purchasing. Mm-hmm. And Florida, of course, was heavy into um foliage plant longevity because FICO spent money were dropping every leaf that was on the stem in those days, and that was solved. And so we've gone from that to flowering potted plants to cut flowers, actually back to cut flowers from the 60s and 70s because Today, the flowers are shipped such long distances. And in the 80s and 90s, we thought, oh my gosh, I ship long distances. They're on a plane three days. Mm-hmm. Where are we today? Sea shipping. That they may be on a, on a ship or in a container for 25 days. Yeah, And there's, the cut flowers are still lasting seven, eight, nine days. The challenge right now is going into Europe, um, it's 40 to 42 days. Mm-hmm. And who would have ever guessed? It's being done, but it's not easy. Yeah, it goes back to some of the basic things: concentrate on your variety, concentrate on humidity, concentrate on an ethylene-free environment, on and on. It goes back to the '60s, '70s, '80s, and '90s. Sure, and just the basic information, and and a lot of people forget that that information or research that was done then, actually has a great deal of relevance today.
0: That's true, I guess, where you can identify that most important research, where it stands the test
2: of time, yep. I would think. Yeah, so those are just some of the things that I see. Um, I would add, I guess I would add in there, and you and I started talking about this, as Bridget was getting on, is biocontrols. Mm. I mean, 10 years ago, or Suzanne Wainwright was saying, you've gotta listen, you gotta listen. <laughs> you know, and she was right. And now with what she's done, with Rose has done and others, biocontrols of horticulture is huge. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's for sure. Bridget, what about from your perspective, some of the most important innovations that you've seen?
1: I, I, I too thought about this and I kind of, zoomed in on the internet for a wide number of reasons. The ability to provide information and some consumers are very information hungry, but particularly since COVID-19 pushed a lot of folks into online sales. For cut flowers, that had been quasi there with the ability to wire flowers, but we got, as a as a society, pretty comfortable with online cut flower purchases, but it's only been the last, mm, not even decade, but within the last decade. I think many, especially younger consumers, are incredibly comfortable with buying a wide range of products online. And that has opened up horticulture an interest in plant-related activities to a lot of people that might not otherwise have come into retail garden centers or other plant marketers. So to me, I think the biggest innovation has been our, as the industry, our adoption of using the Internet to better connect with our consumers both on information and on product sales.
0: Okay. And, you know, I, on the e-commerce side, I know we, we've talked about that a lot, especially as you said, coming out of through the pandemic and then coming out of it. What do you think needs to happen to, you know, for for that to continue to be an important tool for this industry to, you know, not just communicate with their customers, but then ultimately deliver a quality end product to the customer?
1: Well, we're talking about people who are already incredibly busy taking on additional responsibilities. And I think, again, it's, it's one of commitment. I, I see some folks pulling back from online stores in just like the last year or so, mostly in response to: Is this really a direction that we want to go? And is our customer base responding positively to our online offering? Um, you need to make you need to be dedicated to getting the product there in good shape. We're still talking about a live perishable product, not a book or a bottle of shampoo. Yeah. And, and getting that from the grower to the customer, some businesses have mastered that pretty well, very well, uh, particularly business to business. I see a lot of plugs being shipped in, in very good condition, but the larger the plant, the, we get we get some additional challenges. So getting the packaging and the shipping uh, counterpoints uh, mastered, I guess, is the best way to say that, is going to help businesses. And two, who are we cultivating as customers? Because if we, as a commercial entity, aren't cultivating a customer base that's comfortable making those purchases online, they, there's a lot of... Um, benefits to physically going in and and seeing the plant material and smelling the flowers and and just being in that space some people that shopping therapy is very important to them in their springtime rituals but other people particularly young parents are so time strapped that if I want this at two in the morning that that's about the only way I'm going to be able to interact with my plant material. Yeah. So there's there's a lot of factors at play there, but I do see COVID kind of threw gasoline on that fire, and some people have really risen to the challenge, and others are kind of yeah maybe this this avenue is not quite for me. Right.
0: So you know if, if if we look back at everything that we've talked about up to this point, um, what would you say? And this is again a question for each of you. Um, what are you most proud of? What, what what do you consider to be your most important personal accomplishments um, that that you've seen?
1: Well, I'll go back to the students who, former students, the graduates who don't turn and run away when I'm at cultivate, who kind of <laughs> try to come up early or come up afterwards and and shake their hand or give them a hug and and you know ask them who they're working with now and what they're doing and. Almost always to a person, they will say, you taught me this, or I remember you for that. And that just makes my heart smile just to see them still in the industry and happy and productive. I don't think there's any greater, There, no paper, no grant could ever replace the reward that that gives to me.
0: Okay.
2: Terrell, what about you? Oh, I think a lot of it has to do with having had the opportunity to solve many different problems that benefited the industry. Um, you know, I started with Brackdedge brand, <clears>
1: well,
2: <throat> oh, poinsettias. We had growers who were losing semi-loads of poinsettias because of crazy low calcium deficiency that turned into botrytis. And in a three-day shipment, they all the plants would die. Um, and post-harvest, solving some of those problems, um, and it's kind of like Bridget with students where they come up and say, hey, you know, I really enjoyed that, or can you help me? Um, just last week in Bogota, I had a, an industry person came up and say, you know, I use every bit of your post-harvest information. Thank you so much. Huh. Those, those are rewarding times and makes it all worthwhile. Um, And when you asked about AFE, and I mean, Ronald Hines and I did did the same thing. We didn't know we were doing the same thing. Um, We both had AFE funding for many years. And I think our colleagues thought, well, they just like them better. And it wasn't that. It was that even my first trip to yoder brothers when i had been at uf six months um they were in ford myers and the vice president of research was there and i got a tour around the many acres 75 acres of mum production cutting production and we sat down and i said to carl i said so tell me what are the top 10 issues that should be doing research on and Carl looked at me very strange, and he said, could you repeat that? I said, yeah, and so I repeated it. He said, I've never had anybody ask me what we needed somebody to do research on. And, you know, we did that, um, and I would ask, Roy would ask, others would ask, even the AFE board members, um, what, what do you see as the next big issue? What we do, we wrote a proposal on it uh, in very different areas. And if you look at the AFP proposal today, we've changed it. Asking, can you name two growers that you've talked to about this project? Huh. And trying to really drive home the message, just because you want to do it, doesn't mean that it is an industry issue. Yeah, and um, if if researchers go out and they visit greenhouses and they find out what the real issues are, can totally change the, the whole uh, proposal situation because they're gonna be right in the main area of need, and that's what that's what I did. And looking back, I think I spent my career solving other people's problems. <laughs> that's okay. Yeah.
0: Well. You know, so, and, and you talked a little bit about, you know, where we're headed with with the future of some of that. So, you know, I guess as we wind down the conversation here, I'll ask, you know, what's next for each of you? You know, as we said at the beginning of the conversation, you know, people retire, but we'll put that in quotes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, wh- what's next for you and, and wh- what do you see, you know, looking to add to the future of floriculture? What will it take for this industry to maintain it, its long-term success? Um, and continue to be a viable industry.
1: Well, I'm very excited to see up-and-coming faculty members like Ariana Torres and Alicia Reen and Melinda Knuth step into, um, and boy, they can run circles around me statistically because, like I used to joke with them, I learned my stats in the previous century. (laughs) But they're doing some amazing data analyses on consumer data sets. And I'm very excited for the future of consumer research and in, in floriculture. For me personally, I'm I'm still working 40% time, um, winding down a couple of of grants, HRI funded grants and federally funded grants. I uh, still enjoy writing very, very much. Um, I'm I, I still get invitations to give presentations. I'm working on winding that down, but haven't been as successful because I still get excited about sharing the results. And um, most recently, I'm, I'm on a, a board of directors for a, a horticulture-related company, so that's a, an opportunity... I, I didn't see it coming, but it it's very exciting for me. So I'm, I'm gonna keep my fingers in the industry. I just don't think any of us can really walk away from something that has helped shape us as dramatically as our careers.
0: And I would imagine here you, know, you go back to an event like Cultivate being able to go and then sit in the audience as opposed to having to go on stage and, and give a presentation.
1: Uh, I like both places. I really do. I really do. And Alicia Arena and I put in a a topic for for Cultivate this year on Mingle plant grant from HRI. So hopefully we'll get the opportunity to share. And we're collecting another round of data right now. So I I can't step away that easily. And I will help and mentor uh, some of these young faculty members. I told them to think of me as their emeritus postdoc. (laughs) <laughs> you give me an assignment and I will do what you asked me to do and was working on a couple papers this morning before, before I got on our call. So uh, yeah, it's, it, I, it's too much fun to walk away from.
0: <laughs> Terrell, what about you? Is What's next for you? And then wh- where do you see the future going for this industry?
2: Um, I For me, you know, I'm, I'm definitely stepping out of AIPI. Um, retiring from there, we we hired someone a little over a year ago to be my sidekick, and I've told her that, um, you know, I'm the hopefully the mentor and the coach, huh. so that when I step out, she's successful, and and highly a, a young lady with very good credentials, uh, great abilities. She's a communicator and an educator, and I think right now that's what AFB needs. Mm-hmm. She has a background in soil media. Well on the woody well, I can't say on the woody side, but soil media. So she's rapidly learning the industry. Um so I can I think I can step out with confidence that you know good things will continue to happen there. Mm-hmm. Um I I'm not sure what's next, uh, except I will not at all miss the deadlines. <laughs> I'll be very happy to give the deadlines up. You know, there's a newsletter due next week or next month or things like that. Um, and as with Bridget, you know, if somebody calls and asks a question, uh, I'm not sure. In that case, I will have the retired category in my head. Hmm. I will do it in such a way. Yeah, let's let's solve this problem. Let's let's look at this. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. Um, with this, I'm not sure that I will be at the trade shows or the conferences any longer. Okay. And that's really disturbing me. Hmm. Because over the years, I've made great friends. Um, yeah, I may only see them three or four times a year, but it's like old home week. And I've told a number of them, I said, you know, when the phone rings and it's me, I'm just trying to maintain touch. And maintain contact with you, and, and um, so I'll still read all the floriculture newsletters. I'll read emails and be happy to, you know, respond to to calls. Uh, as for the industry, I think it's really very bright because um, there the industry has the has access to some tools right now that are far superior than 20 years ago, mm. uh, both production, shipping, handling, I think even marketing. Um, I think all of that, people are understanding more. I'm going to be very interested to see where AI takes us okay, and what that does for the industry. Uh, I wrote an article for floral management, and my I think my comment in there was something like, AI may take us further. Then the introduction of the computer took the industry. We just don't know yet. But what little bit I do know get out of the way, it's coming. And it may be really good.
0: <laughs> oh, that's that's a really interesting take on and where I said in the future. Yeah, that, that that's a tricky one. That's yeah. Every time I talk about it, you know, whether it's with a, a company who's developing technology or a grower, you know, it's it's a challenge to to, to really look at it and Get a full comprehension. Of how, you know, how is this going to ultimately benefit my operation? Um, you know, I, I I will ask one more question from each of you, and I know we've talked about your each of your careers intertwining at times with each other. What have
2: you learned from each other along the way? well from Bridget, that marketing is actually really important. Had to do that, Bridget.
1: Thanks, Terrell. <laughs> you know, one of the, I think the most important thing I learned from Terrell, and and one of the reasons that I wanted to go into academia was because I didn't believe that it was politically charged. And I will say from Terrell, I've learned political political prowess is really important for academicians and learning how to develop that. Terrell was somebody that I, I watched, observed, how he did things and really feel like that positively impacted many dimensions of my career. He and a few others, I think, are really stand out in terms of their interpersonal skills and their political prowess. And I I really admire Terrell for that.
2: Well, thank you. Um, But... You yeah, know, the industry gave me those opportunities. Uh, Society of American Florists, AFB, and others. Um, I mean, who ever thought that this kid whose parents didn't even want me to go into horticulture, they, they considered farming, um, would be testifying before Congress trying to get research money for floriculture? And um, hey, SAF gave me the opportunity for. about four or five years and that was fun thanks for joining us
0: you can learn more at greenhousegrower.com please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen